we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook, and joining me in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donahoe, a GP of great renown, who I respect wholeheartedly, and not the least of which is because his long-standing interest and expertise in detoxification. So welcome, Mark. You flatter me only to get <laughs> me to come along here, don't you? Yeah. It, is a, it is an area that I have been involved with for you know, 25 of my 33 years, 26 of my 33 years, and it is an area of fascination for me. I think it's a much, much bigger player in health than anyone gives it uh, credit for. And indeed, I still remember you on television eloquently debating with, I'm pretty sure he was a psychiatrist, um, who was saying, no, these people with chronic fatigue and multiple chemical sensitivities can't have anything physically wrong with them. It's got to be mental. Mm. And so, therefore, the appropriate um, treatment is antidepressants. Yeah. And it was reflected when we published our study on uh, organochlorines in chronic fatigue syndrome from our hospital unit. It was published, one of the main articles in the Medical Journal of Australia, but the editorial was, can't floor the study, but we know it can't be true because pesticides kill pests and hurt pests. They don't hurt humans. And L- little how far d- we've come from <laughs> that time. Well, they, they obviously didn't know about the Tagamet um, yes. uh, case, the legal case in the States, I think it was, where mm. a guy was taking Tagamet, um, mixing or, or pesticides, and basically turned himself in, into an insect because he inhibited uh, the detoxification of the pesticide. No, but he was awarded um, whatever damages. I think he eventually died of cancer, but right. but he was awarded whatever damages plus $1 million in punitive um, mm-hmm. damages because the drug company knew about oh, these right. issues. Oh, yes. Yes, that's the fact. If you suppress acid, in fact, doctors regard acid suppression as an overall good thing. National Prescribing Service keeps telling us, look, really, don't do this too much. You know, we've overdone that. We're so focused on GORD and for symptom control that we forget that the downside of this is not simply that you change the gastric acid and stop the protection against microbes getting to the bowel, but that those microbes come back the other way and get into the lung. Mm-hmm. Pneumonia rates are four times higher. So there's no free lunches in medicine. Every time we get onto a new kick, antidepressants, tagamet and the acid suppressants, every time we do that, we find, oh, you know, there was a downside to that. I, I really have got real concerns when there's a quick fix without due care given to normal physiology, yeah. the, the human physiology. Yeah. 
And you know. every drug is used as though it has a single action. You think that when you take a herb and you bring it down to the active ingredient that there's one action, mm -hmm. and we should have learned our lesson. Biology is very, very interesting that similar molecules do similar jobs in similar areas. And when we play around with histamine receptors and we think, you know, well, we know how to control stomach acid, what we don't pay attention is neurological, gastroenterological, microbiome consequences. Medicine's failure is not the failure to be brilliant in what we do. It's not understanding the context of what we do and how it has consequences for other parts of health down the line. You see the benefits early. What you don't see is the consequences until much later, usually. Mm -hmm. one, one of the interests, and it was Bob Bust who sparked this in me many, many years ago, um, and that was basically looking at the function of the drug, how a drug works to be able to look at the side effect profile. Yes. Um, hence, you know, the classic ones was, you know, the blood pressure drugs with cough, you know, because they're working on angiotensin too, things like that. So um, I think that the issue is to know the physiology, mm. the human physiology, and then apply a drug or any therapy to that and, you know, look at the consequences of such. I, th I think yeah, we've really I, I agree. To be but mindful. also to think of drugs in terms of toxicology. We're so keen as doctors to know the upside and the indication of the drug that we lose all of our common sense about the toxicology of a foreign molecule. And that, I think, the failure of medicine in drug therapies, the reason we have run into so many disasters and keep doing it, is the mindset is what benefit can it bring and damn the consequences. They couldn't be that great because we don't see anything in the short-term trials. And then you see the long-term outcomes, mm. which are disastrous. Yes. And we keep on making that same mistake. Similarly, when it came to pesticide exposure, when it's come to agricultural chemicals, you don't see the short-term adverse outcomes except at very high dose. So the tendency has been, let's not pay attention to the long-term because it will be lost in the mess of all the other things that people do in their lives. Then we see asthma rates, autism rates, we see all of these things increase. And by that time, it's too late to untangle it from all of the other things that also go on in life at the same time. So toxicology, broadly applied to humans, is what goes into your body that the body is not used to. Mm. And how does the body handle it using enzyme systems that were designed for very different purposes, you know? So, so bringing that round to the, those patients that found Dr. Mark Donahoe, how did they find you and, and, and what was their situation when you got to first see them? My history was I was trained orthodoxly. I regarded integrative and complementary. They were all called alternative medicine at that time. I regarded it as hocus pocus. That's right. <laughs> Druids, yeah. When we were insulting other doctors because of their failure to act adequately, we called it homeopathic treatment. I was the worst of them. I was a grand believer in this. And I ended up in a medical practice. I left hospital. Everything in medicine is true in the hospitals. They're the, they're the kind of cathedrals in which what you learn in university comes true yeah. and you save lives and everything's dramatic, yeah. but it's only a week or two <laughs> weeks or three weeks that you get to see people for. Go to general practice. I was on the central coast in a semi-rural area and suddenly I was seeing people with chronic grumbling. I tried to categorize them according to my medical diagnostic criteria that worked so well in hospitals. They didn't fit, but patterns emerged and the pattern that was emerging was really vigorous, fit, healthy farmers were coming in with chronic debilitating illnesses. It was inflammatory. They were fatigued. They couldn't do the farm work. And these were non-complaining people. They basically wanted, give me a drug so I can get back. I've got to get back and crop. You know, I've got to get back mm. and, and plant. And 
I started following that through because there was no obvious reason. When moving it forward, when we finally got a chance to run a clinic to see what the intoxication was, this was uh, 1989 to about 1994-95, we got a chance to test the hypothesis that the people with this grumbling chronic fatigue, weakness, grumbling multi-system illnesses, chemical sensitivity, Mm. we had them in our clinic, we got the bloods, we had them analysed at a laboratory in the USA called AccuChem, and we found the organochlorine levels, which is effectively hexachlorobenzene, dildrin, um, uh, DDT and its analogues, they were around about between 8 and 20 times higher than they were for the general population. And I'll, I'll just interject there. You're talking dildrin and DDT long after they were um, forbidden in well, Australia, right? DDT long after. Dildrin hadn't been um, banned all that long. But there was a movement towards different ones. And, and of course, the hexachlorobenzene, became quite famous because we did track where that came from, and that was from Botany Bay, where a famous company had leaking drums, and that company is still here under a different name today, which I probably shouldn't <laughs> name. But, but that, so, so for our listeners, because again, this was something I, I remember reading about you, your um, expertise in detoxification. This is when you you analysed the the levels, the blood levels of around of about 130 people with this, and we compared them to normals. The but controls. they ate fish from Sydney Harbour, correct? No, that's a later one. Oh, that's right? a later so one. So that's a later one. We're right. going. That was only in around about 2004 that we did the fish levels, and I'm still being beaten up to this day because Sydney prawns are no longer on the menus, <laughs> but contaminated Sydney prawns are no longer on the menus of restaurants. <laughs> so, so it's, it's important thing. to say that. <laughs> But, I mean, even that's a good story because we raised that concern back in 1991, right? We, we brought this back and we raised the concern about uh, the dioxin levels mm. coming from Homebush Bay yes. in 1991. What they did at the time was they measured levels in the fish and they said, no, that's below World Health Standards. 20 years later, there's a sudden panic when levels that were lower were no longer. The World Health Organization dropped by a factor of 10. Mm. And so we were exposed to very high levels, every one of us. Mm. There was no bother because the standards said we don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Move on. The reference years. range That's changed. Right. The <laughs> reference range turned into panic, banning of fishing in Sydney Harbour. And I sat there bemused because, yes, it was still safer to not have commercial fishing in Sydney Harbour. Yes, it had been stirred up by the whole Olympics thing and, you know, disturbing the uh, the soils and everything up there. But effectively, at a time when it was safer, we banned fishing but had no problems with it at a time when it was higher. Mm. But going right back to that early time, what we published was, here's an interesting fact. Those people randomly selected from the healthy population compared to those who have chronic fatigue syndrome who were referred to our clinic, the difference was massive. The question that we couldn't answer was, is this because of high exposure or because of failure of detoxification? And so I think what's become clear is there's two groups, the farmers and the agricultural workers. It was a high exposure mm, issue mm. that ruined them. Mm. For the rest of us, there were the group that failed to detoxify those chemicals, failed to clear them from their system, that became much more of an issue. They hadn't had high exposure, but what they did have, they cleared slowly, and so there was a bioaccumulation over time. And this is Mr. and Mrs. Suburban Smith. That's correct. We, we had a clinic where there was referrals from doctors around Australia one third of all referrals were for, from agricultural Australia, which represented only two or three percent of the population. 
And any farmer came to the city with great, great difficulty. <laughs> they did not want to come or be there. Yeah. But what we did show at that time is we could raise the detoxification rate. We could clear chemicals from those people's system in a three-week period as much as they could do in two years or what you would expect in two years. What we also showed was that was a bad idea if the person was unwell to begin with, going in for rapid detox mm, with no protection, crazy. with no thinking about how do you prevent exposure when they get home. We were actually putting people at risk, and we had to admit that at the end. What we found was, yes, people were detoxified, and we have never been able to do long-term follow-up, but at least at the six-month mark, they felt significantly worse cleared out because now they had been in a clinic three weeks without exposure, They'd been detoxified and they had all the risks of too rapid a detoxification. So our lesson learned was if you don't protect a person, if you don't have good nutrition, good gut, you don't have the antioxidant and the enzyme systems working, it is harsh to just race in and detoxify a person. And I see this today in my practice mm. that over and over people are saying, oh, you're toxic, let's do a rapid weight loss. Mm. Crazy. And the rapid weight loss releases, say, seven kilograms of fat over a month or so, and all of the fat-soluble chemicals come straight into the circulation, hit the brain, hit the liver, hit the kidneys, and you can actually see the uh, liver function change negatively when you overdo that detoxification. We got too keen. Knowing too little is the same as not knowing enough uh, from the orthodox medical profession. We knew too little about what are the consequences of charging in and trying to do good when you haven't got the protection in place. That that smacks of me of of what you say um, you experience in your hospital training, is that you know you do all this magic in the hospital, but you know you don't you're not prepared for the fallout. You don't no. see the fallout later on. You saw that in general practice. In general practice, you do because you can't kick a person out of hospital, and you haven't changed your rotation when that person comes back. Mm. You are still sitting there in a practice. So I was at Erina Heights up near Matcham, where the farming communities were, and I was there for a uh, what was it six or seven year period. So I got a chance to see the families coming and going, the kids with affected with neurological consequences, the autoimmune type disorders that I was seeing in the farmers, the arthritis and the inflammation. I got a chance to follow that through over time. And I'll, I'll give you a hint. You know, we did, I did stuff like look at allergies, look at sensitivities, yeah. look at diet. We got people who didn't get better with all the things we put in. Then I heard Ian Brighthope once on a radio show talking about the intravenous vitamin C, went and did his course, um, got acnem trained, came back and thought, I've got to do vitamin C. And it worked like magic. It was just the most magic thing that happened because all of these people who'd not got well suddenly got well. And I thought, oh, well, the answer is vitamin C. Yeah. Start that as the first thing for everybody. And I made people sick with the vitamin C. It didn't work like magic unless all the other work had been done. So the training my patients gave me there was when it comes to toxicity, if you've done all the groundwork, detoxification is just brilliant. Managing the viruses, giving the intravenous vitamin C, which we thought at that time was pure antioxidant. And now we understand there's a kind of pro-oxidant kick and this follow-through is a bit of an antioxidant mop-up. But that's what I mean. We never know enough to be sure of what we're doing. We always think that the drug or the approach or the detox works just fine. And that's where I come back to a real respect for traditional medicine. Traditional medicine has had to deal with hundreds, if not thousands of years of doing this kind of thing. Mm. So the failed forms of treatment, the ones that made people sick, start to die out over time because the people who <laughs> die out themselves. So yeah, we learned good lessons there, but detox is not 
a clean, easy thing to do. You can't just give, you know, so penicillamine for copper toxicity takes the copper out, takes zinc out, takes other elements out. You don't know the consequences of what you're leaching until too late. We have a target that we're trying to win, but the medical model just doesn't work well when you need a holistic and broad-based system of detoxification. So when you spoke about, you know, your your, um, acute if you like, toxicity from farmers overloading a system. And you spoke that there's this huge issue, 60-odd percent, 66-odd percent of your patients were those people that couldn't effectively get rid yeah. of those. And that, to me, is one of the the big problems that I used to see with these very quick, as you say, the detoxification programs where they, you know, um, the, the, the weed feed and seed sort of stuff, mm-hmm. where it was just too quick. Yeah. And so I'd see chronic fatigue patients just cycling at a lower ebb. That's all you did. You just well, cycled them down there rather than up here. What happened was my practice was built on others detoxifying too quickly mm. because people came along to me because they entered a detox, it messed them up terribly, although it exacerbated their illness terribly. And that still happens to, to this day. In the, in the last week, I've seen two or three people with this same pattern. Well-meaning practitioners going in instead of drug therapy say, oh, we know how to detox. And the enthusiasm carries it for a short period of time. The detox is real. But just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it at that time. And I think what we learned, we, we had a, a kind of... Um, a learning experience from our time in the clinic, which was uh, avoid, protect, detoxify, and then educate, that it was not the detox. We wanted just the D. But the avoidance is essential. If you put a person back in the environment, whether that's the food they're eating or the chemicals they're working with or the agricultural area, then you haven't gained all that much. All you've done is educate a set of enzymes on how to do a job, whereupon the person goes back and may be more toxic. We'll get into that with phase one, phase two. The protect means you've got to have the protection in place. You have to be confident that that person can sustain the mobilization of toxins. If the toxins are coming out of the fat stores and coming out of bone and you've got kidneys which are on the edge and you've got a liver on the edge and you've got a brain which is, you know, variable, very twitchy function, you can almost guarantee you're going to push people over that edge. Then when you've got that done, the avoidance and protection then a gentle detox building up so that you're paying attention to the person every step of the way and and listening carefully for, hey, you know, I'm starting to feel worse. What gets me to this day is the number of practitioners who say, oh, that's a healing crisis. Mm. Let's double it. And then the person gets well, gets sick again. The healing crisis is way, way overstated, just like Herzheimer reactions are Mm. overstated. When things go wrong, we practitioners have to be honest about it and say, things are going wrong. I did not expect that. Mm. There's a big difference between... But it's a good thing because you know to change. You can see That's right. The feedback was harsh. In our clinic, when we went and had a look two years, six months to two years after people exited the clinic... Mm. What we wanted to hear was how well people were doing because we already knew the short-term data was we cleared the toxins. What we heard was the most effective thing done in the clinic, kinesiology. Really? (laughs) Yeah, kinesiology, reflexology, um, the dietary advice, the psychologists, the practitioners, the doctors, uh, and colonics, right? Colonics were the number one thing. So this goes into getting rid of... No, I know. I know. It goes into what do you do with those organ systems? How do you do it gently? What was rated most positively was not what we knew we'd done. We knew the tissue and blood and the fat levels. We had done all the science on that. 
But that did not translate directly to what we wanted, which was better health outcomes for those people. And we were actually, the story was, we were actually closed down effectively when auditors, very well-known auditors, critics of integrative medicine, came to the hospital and said, okay, for these people, what of all the procedures is the one that makes them feel best? And it was a colonic. And that was, oh my God, you are going back to the dark ages. But we had to report what people reported. The saunas made them feel worse. The vitamin C often made the them feel worse. The infrared saunas? Yeah. They, we, we made had, them feel worse? Yeah. They made them feel worse because we had fully loaded people. And ah. we and we were, these were hospital admissions. These oh, right. were not right. standard kind of standard practice patients turning up. And this is not the same as every practitioner sees. But what we'd done was push them over that edge to sweat it out, to kind of get the mobilisation of toxins. What I think the colonics did was that they took the toxins and they dragged them into the gut and they cleared out the colon and so the contribution of the so-called auto-intoxication. And as we found out at the time, the colon is not a passive organ for detoxification. Oh, no. It is active in the fat-soluble items and they come into, just as water is removed one way, you get the fat-soluble agents going the other direction. And so what we, I think, were effectively doing was getting stuff out of the body, the same as you can with cholestyramine or, you know, any of these things that bind toxins in the gut. We were getting a colon full of stuff and the water was just washing it out before it had a chance for any further intoxication. So in a hospital environment, when you're doing colonics, what was your reported adverse event um, rate? In the the hospital itself, Mm. virtually everybody. I, I adverse, laugh about no, uh, Sorry, forgive me. Um, adverse event from the actual colonic procedure, i.e. Oh, bowel perforations. Zero. I nothing. mean, zero. So there was no safety time. issue with no, it. No, there was none. And it was warm, soapy water. We didn't even, it was not caffeine enemas or anything like that. It was the simplest thing. And what we were looking for, of all the things reported that allow a person to feel better during detox, what works best? We asked those people later, you know, what worked best for you while you're in hospital? And overwhelmingly, it was not the things that we'd hoped for. It was the simple stuff of clear the colon. Um, I've got to. I've got to say, Mark. You know, one of going in for a, a colonoscopy, a standard medical procedure. Um, you don't like the preparation for it, but boy, do you feel clean and refreshed I know. afterwards. <laughs> I know. If it doesn't dehydrate you to the yeah. point where you collapse. Well, I was actually going to ask you about that. What about with these people that don't have really good functioning enzyme systems, um, which are reliant on electrolytes, and they've usually got poor hydration? What happens to their electrolytes when you're doing um, bowel washouts, when you're doing colonics? I, I think there's a much bigger issue than just that. I mean, we have problems with people with fatigue syndromes and intoxication problems with the maintaining aldosterone, antidiuretic hormone, the whole issue of low blood pressure dropping lower Mm. is still a bit mysterious. They don't fit any decent category. It's not a pituitary adenoma. It's It's not a failure of any system. But these people typically will pee out three, three and a half, four litres per day. We give them a bottle, a urinary bottle of four litres. Many of my patients fill it on a standard 24-hour assessment of their uh, output of trace elements or toxic metals. And... It's it's been a, a point of concern. Forgive me, sorry. So this is before treatment. This, this is, is they pay out people, huge amounts. People turning up. I routinely was doing an assessment of 
their trace elements. For people where there was evidence that they may have malabsorption or problems like that, mm. the kidneys are a really useful organ. Yeah. They Heck salvage yeah. <laughs> every molecule that they can for things that you are short of, and they wash out stuff that you have in excess. And so looking for trace and toxic metals made sense. But what was outstanding was that the typical average Australian's output is 800 mils to 1500 mils per day. And that's the, you know, the 95% confidence intervals fall within that of a healthy Australian adult. We have people, I, don't, I can't remember the last CFS patient who's peed under two litres, but it's typically up at the three or four litre range, very dilute urine, and they're low in blood pressure. So they're, do you use that as an assessment, I, as in how much do you pee per day? I use it oddly as an assessment of when people are getting better. It's a really simple thing. They can pee for a day into a bottle and when their urinary volume goes down and the urine is more concentrated, that's at a point where recovery is reasonably good. When things go off, they start peeing more. Now, I worked for two years with a uh, renal physician in Western Australia to try and figure this out. Mm. What is going wrong? It's partly pituitary, partly hypothalamic. There seems to be a whole mess of things. The patients were not drinking because they believed it to be good for them. They drank from thirst. Mm -hmm. So initially it was, oh, that's diabetes insipidus. It wasn't. It's diabetes. No, it wasn't. So it was none of the categories. And in the end, the delightful line of the physician was, if it's not any of the known categories, then it's the unknown category, which is psychogenic drinking. <laughs> they are drinking excessively <laughs> because they believe it to be good for you, uh, them and they're not telling you. But what about assessment of, say, natriuretic hormone or, yeah. as you say, aldosterone and yeah. you're looking at the balance of those well, hormones? Did you I, have high levels? Or? No, I didn't test at that time. So this is a learning experience. So those, those urinary values came up very early mm. and it's such a simple test. You do not even have to get the metals or anything done. You can just simply say to a patient, pee into a bottle for 24 hours, drink as you normally would. And if they're up above two and a half litres, something odd is going on in how they are washing stuff out. Yep. The washing what out is really interesting. Yeah. For a toxin, it has to be dilute enough to not damage the renal tubules. The nipple, yeah. So one trick of the body is wash a lot out, but you have mandatory sodium loss. You can't dilute urine too far. Mm. So the drinking for thirst is true to cover the loss of the volume of the vascular system. Mm -hmm. But they're drinking not salt water, they're drinking plain water, and so their sodium levels drop, the blood pressure drops, and they become even more fatigued. And this is one of the lessons learned in toxicology is you have excretory organs. You've got a liver, you've got kidneys. And I think we undervalued kidneys for many, many years there. We thought, oh, kidneys just, you know, they cut the, the phase two detoxicants out and what, what could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is the kidneys do it, but they do it at a cost. Mm, they're and the great the, siphon. They are. They? Yeah. And Not I, the filter, they're the siphon. Yeah, yeah. I have found kidneys really a quite remarkable way of assessing a person's function. Not because they have renal failure. My patients have estimated GFRs that are very low. So they do this trick of creatinine, urea. They, there's a mathematical formula to work out what's called creatinine clearance, and they call it estimated GFR. My That's patients, glomerular filtration rate. Yeah, yeah, and a normal value is a value over 90, preferably around 120. So here's the trick. They come back with their biochemistry saying eGFR 56 or 49, and for years... I went, well, we've got to go and do the real GFR, which means you take blood and urine at the same time and you check exactly what comes out in creatinine. And they were 120, 125, absolutely normal. So there is something going on which makes on the blood testing of the sodium and the urea and creatinine, it looks like mathematically they should be in some kind of renal failure. 
you test the kidneys directly, they're not. They're doing something different, which gives it that appearance on serum biochemistry. And a, a good simple test is the estimated GFR versus the real GFR. In my patients, the estimated GFR is around about half of what the real GFR is. Wow. GFR meaning glomerular filtration yeah. rate. Yeah. And so we're learning lessons about a detox organ having to do a job that it's probably not well designed to do and the tricks that the body can get into. It's not purely aldosterone, although I measure that now. And since the Biocuticals Conference earlier this year, I measure the plasma renin activity as well. There are clear mismatches there, low aldosterone over and over and over, sometimes falling off the bottom of the scale, most often not. But you can see the body struggling to maintain a blood pressure, which yep. is adequate. And we generally do that because of hypertension. So we're a little bit behind the eight ball. And yeah. I, I'm working with, um, you know, Jason Kaplan, you know, one of the people, a cardiologist that's an integrative cardiologist. We're planning to do that work with him to see if we can unravel what this is. Is it cardiovascular? The, the initial problem is low blood pressure and weakness and fatigue. But he and I both agree that you can't just up the blood pressure and expect a person to get better. That's paying no attention to the process. I was speaking to somebody just earlier today, indeed, who um, uh, had low blood pressure, reported that to her local GP, and they said, eat more salt. Yeah. <laughs> like... I have to say that I have to say that as well until we find out a mechanism. I, I think there's brilliant openings for researchers in this area. Something odd is going on. Well, interesting, what, what she was pointing out was um, increased salt intake can have or is associated with an increased um, TH17 mm. recruitment. So you're then recruiting an inflammatory sort of process, yes. which may affect your detoxification. Yes. Um, which so, uh, Houston talked about, you know, salt intake, the negative side of it, and there's uh, the positive side. Somehow yeah. you have to get this in. I have a couple of patients who have the PIC lines, the intravenous lines, where their lives are still dependent upon them getting litres, three litres or four litres of saline or Hartman's in every single day of their lives. Yeah. The hospitals that said, no, that can't be true, you don't need it, completely unable to take them off without one of them, her blood pressure dropped to about 40 on unmeasurable. Wow. And they had to resuscitate her through intensive care. It's yeah. amazing how even in the hospital units, we are so sure that we're right that when something like that happens, there's no explanation. So it's thought to be psychogenic. It, it, the, the psychiatrists have become That's a pretty the severe psych. You, you think yourself hmm, yes. to an acute Your death, fear anyway. of me taking you off that drip suddenly dropped your blood pressure yeah. to a level that doesn't Point, sustain life. Pointing the bone. Yes. <laughs> so talking about detoxification, talking about these patients that are sick with chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivities, one thing that I did want to point out was your history where you spoke about your your work in the hospital was that you were very unique in that you had these truly hypoallergenic like clinic sort of rooms sure. with with um, ceramic walls indeed where you could stop the paint and other yeah, there was there was no paint we, we but I mean it, it wasn't unique we copied Bill Ray's clinic and so we got a lot of advice from uh, Bill Ray's clinic in uh, Houston. We got a lot of advice from the laboratories that we were using about what would be the surfaces that could emit or re-emit these uh, toxins. And we had a half million dollar um, ventilation unit with filters that just cost a fortune. So we had the cleanest air in Australia in that place. We measured it. We constantly monitored it. And here's the funny thing of that clinic. We made the air so clean that 
we ran into a problem with normal nursing staff, that people who did a double shift in there, in other words, they were in there for, what, 16 hours. Mm. When they went outside, they got headaches. They were unwell. That if you remove a person from all day-to-day, life-to-life, you know, atmospheric intoxicants, you do it for eight hours, they get out pretty well scot-free. You do it for 16 hours, normal healthy nurses were getting really sick on exit from the clinic. Normal healthy nurses. Yes, maybe that's the wrong, <laughs> maybe that's the wrong phrase. Once you're in the hospital system, that's maybe not true. But we had to limit shifts to be able to do that. And the worst thing was we had patients who came in who for we initially kept for the whole three weeks in the clinic. We could not discharge them. Because as soon as they left, they were sickened. And so we had to bring them back in and develop a discharge program, which was five minutes the first day. A whole week was taken to re-establishing their ability to manage outdoor air. They came in having breathed the outdoor air sick. They were better in the clinic, but every time they were exposed, they would get sick again. We had police bringing some of them home saying, we found another wanderer, you know, the, mm. you know disoriented after they got out there and couldn't speak. So... Talking about a treatment program, and I know this is a you know piece of string, a you know ballpark sort of thing, but with generalities, taking the load off yeah. toxicants, what sort of things did you institute? And then also, can you give us a, a broad feel as to what sort of therapy you looked at? And lastly, how did you prepare them for reintegration with the outside world? Mm. It's a, it's a, it is a very long story. The thing that we realised early was what do humans have when it comes to intoxication? We've got a fabulous system for detoxifying what goes on in the gut. We have a microbiome that does phase zero detox that takes many of the things that could potentially kill us and turns it into useful nutritional factors. So a lot of the phenolics, the salicylates, those, the job of the bugs in the ba- and the bacteria in the bowel is to transform them to things that really are useful or that we have at least adapted to. Whereas these days... Where do many of our intoxicants come from? They come from the respiratory tract. Now, in the past, you have a gut which can be intoxicated and a liver whose whole job is to stop that intoxication running any further. The whole portal system goes to the liver. Its filtration, enzyme, and regeneration capacity is massive. So throughout the history of humans, primates, and most mammals, the liver has been the protection against the one major intoxicant, what you eat, and what, you, what finally makes it into systemic circulation. There is no liver for the lung. What you breathe in goes through the lung wall and enters general circulation with the next pump of the ventricle, distributing that evenly around the body. And so what we did recognise after a while is many of the intoxicants that a person should have handled, they didn't because the liver is not getting the first run at the blood. The liver is, in ah. fact getting a kind of 10% or so each pass through, and there's plenty of opportunity for those toxins to lodge in fat in other areas, including the brain. 30% fat, it's a really good organ Mm. for Mm. toxicants to end up in. The other thing that we noticed was what people put on their skin. The intentional self-intoxication with cosmetics, with with, uh, things which are used to enhance beauty, to change the collagen structure it's easy to forget that the skin is a massive organ for absorption of toxicants. Mm. And now the focus on cosmetics and the focus on creams and the toxicology via the skin is something that we learned while we are in that clinic. Getting people off their cosmetics, you've got to see how hard that is for people who think the cosmetics are good for health. It makes you look prettier, 
but the cost of it is that you've got things absorbed into the bloodstream that you are never meant to see, and those ones affect behaviour and they affect the liver and they affect everything. Is there decent alternatives on the market now? There are. There are plenty of decent alternatives, and and many of the, the intoxicants that were in there, the parabens and the like, they were optional extras to make it easier to put on, to make something easier. And so now we have you know groups in the USA assessing all of the products that are coming to the cosmetic market to say these are the ones that are known to have toxic chemicals in them. That was 95% of everything on the market when they began. We've now got a solid 10 to 15% of products that are coming with what we believe to be non-toxic agents. What's the complaint? They don't work as well. Why? Because they don't penetrate the skin and get to the blood supplies quickly (laughs) enough. And so you need time with those. Like many things in integrative medicine, in cosmetics, things have to work quickly so you notice a difference. Things that work slowly to reverse aging processes, to increase skin hydration, those kind of things are not so popular because they take time. So we, we have learned lessons that if you don't control what you breathe and you don't control what goes on your skin, you intoxicate from other sources and then you do get systemic intoxication. What we did for the detox was complicated, but the basic program was we fasted people, we got them to start to sweat out stuff. Interestingly, in that time, we did have half the people that we put in the clinic where liver function went from normal to abnormal. Mm. We called it our liver stress test. Those people who every naturopath had said, you've got a toxic liver? No, you don't. But they did as soon as they fasted. And then we, we used as the agent. As soon as? Or was there a time well, limit? 48 hours. 48 hours, yeah. yeah. So yeah. in a very short period of time, liver function tests so became abnormal. So that goes abnormal. that 5-2 sort of thing, you know, mm, that, that's n- nothing more than two days. Yeah. yeah. And, and you detoxify at your risk. We were pretty vigorous. It was on a pure fast with only water. So did you fast, say, for one day and then refeed and then, then another day, separate the what we learned later, No, what we learned later was we still wanted them to fast because we were doing food challenges. So we were trying to get their gut emptied and we were in hustling things through. Yep. What we learned was we needed an amino acid formula that at least had the methionine, cysteine, taurine, at least had mm. essential amino acids so that we were not taking the last line of protection away from the liver whereupon they fell over. Yeah. 17 days roughly is what the literature says the abnormal liver function tests will come on a fast. We were seeing 48 hours. So we were seeing people close to the edge. And we just gave them a little push over the edge. So something like a low allergy rice protein yes. or yep. I think you're getting, something you know, that you're getting covers, pea proteins now. Yeah, something that covers the essential amino acids. We didn't want yep. them in a strong catabolic state, so something that could you know sustain a little bit of kilojoules as well. Yep. And so we got people through that. Then we went through the infrared saunas. We went through the intravenous vitamin C. Some had chelation when we knew that they had metals. There was a variety of things, but what we had ignored in our clinic was the prior protection, the antioxidant protection, the gut protection, putting something on the gut so that when the bile squeezed and the toxicants came out, they did not go through enterohepatic recirculation over and over. The colonics were a good method, we think, of extracting. And Mm. so the sweat and the colonics, the colonics with the lowest adverse reaction, the sweat with the highest adverse reaction, and the diet with a pretty high adverse reaction. So if I had gone back in time, If we lived before that and did it again, Mm. my approach would be get them on the good antioxidant protection. Don't take them off that when they enter a clinic just because you're doing something active. And then when protected, 
bring the detoxification up slowly. Don't do it too quickly. Yeah, the detox is last, not first. And it involves the gut and it's really critical to get the gut right because even the inhaled toxins, eventually the elimination has to be through kidneys, gut or sweat, a little bit through breath. But if you have got everything coming through the bile, the fat-soluble stuff with inadequate bile salts, with an enterohepatic recirculation, if you're not taking it out of the gut, and getting it through fairly swiftly, you get seven or eight times those molecules get recirculated and have to be done all over again. I'm convinced that you can do this with those fibers of the Kalahari, that there are things in the traditional ancient diets which bound the toxins and where the body got quite used to it, the fiber of fruit and vegetables is going to play a big part in the natural detoxification and the binding of many of those lipid-soluble agents. And the other thing that I do which we didn't know at the time, but we had a fair inkling of, is pay attention to the microbiome. If the gut bugs are not doing their job, then you are uniquely susceptible at the time that they're on strike to the toxins coming back again. Their ability to utilise those toxins and turn them into something less toxic is what I call phase zero detox. We have phase one and two and three, um, and it's worth a really brief explanation. We only have phase one and two at the time that we were doing it, Phase two was glutathionation, glucuronidation, transsulfation, or the sulfation pathways. So it was the enzyme systems prepared it. This was like putting the garbage out. And then the garbage collection system was phase two. There's now a division, which I think one of your uh, speakers is talking about soon, of phase three, which is the transporters out of the cell. That once you've bound it to glutathione, once you've bound it, that once the glucuronidation has occurred, The toxins are now bound, but they've got to still be transported. And that third stage of detoxification of the transport is really, really important. I'm busting to hear that at the the, uh, seminar. Chris Shade seminar, yeah. 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 So I'm busting to hear how that works because that was never part of the mindset. It was phase one, phase two. And what we tried to do was make sure we never pushed up phase one when the phase two was not adequate to cart the rubbish away. It was just like putting your garbage out and no garbage collector. He's a really interesting guy because he approaches it from a pharmacological perspective. He's a pharmacist. Mm. And so there's this... um, patient but responsible <laughs> you know he wants it to do a job yeah so it's it's got to work sort of thing. Um, yeah. very interesting but so what I would um, urge the the listeners um, to to change what I said earlier you know the weed feed and seed it just I've never met anybody who actually did that program so rather than that it's like seed 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 <laughs> feed feed weed seed feed <laughs> so, it is. but you weed afterwards yeah, and, and it's if you hard though for a patient who turns up wanting to see changes mm, quickly yeah. we are all pressured to do the medical model and if there is some deep lesson to learn from integrative and complementary medicine and traditional medicine is that recovery takes time and starting treatment takes time so we know that it takes time on one end what we've got to get people used to is the preparation for detox is really critical. The sicker the person is, the higher the need for avoidance for a period of time. And that can be six to 12 months for many toxins, some of the metals and the like. The protection so that you know the tissues are protected and the liver and the kidneys and the brain are not on edge. And when you've got a partial response in that area, a careful turning up of those things which encourage the detoxification. All the time, putting something onto the gut to bind the toxins as they come out and paying attention to the kidneys, the urinary volume as a surrogate marker. When the kidneys are happy, they come back to just a litre and a half a day because there's not the same load on them to detoxify and there's not the same dilution of urine and blood pressure drops. 
Dr. Mark Donahoe, this we could we could talk about this all day. It's such a huge topic, and I, I would like to delve into a couple of areas. We could talk about <laughs> it for on. a year because <laughs> it's an emerging it and evolving field. And mm. I, I get concerned when you hear newspapers go, "Oh, detox is rubbish." It isn't. What's happened though? is that we've turned detox into a trendy thing that you do in a you know a seven-day yeah. clinic entry. And for well people, brilliant idea. You get a chance to clear out the gut, you get a chance to re-establish, press the reset button, microbes come back to life, and it's really good. For a sick person, there are significant risks that I just encourage practitioners to say, give me time. This is a six-month to 12-month process. It is not a three-week mm. process like we did in the Indeed hospital. Indeed ongoing. I, I think of the analogy of you know managing a, a biodynamic vegetable garden where you've got some weeds in there. Yeah. But you, you, you're constantly having to look after it and tend. But, you, you know, some weeds is not bad. It's when they overtake the vegetables that you want where it becomes an issue. Yes. So you're constantly having to slightly weed. I saw Robin Kirby's, well-known herbalist, Robin Kirby's garden. Uh, she's a herbalist. First time I looked at a herbalist garden, I said, well, there's only weeds here. Where's the magical flowers? There's the pretty things. Where's yeah. all of that? The weeds often have a very significant contribution. The the junk DNA, the weeds, the things we think are not biologically yeah. active, really, really critical. So the weeding and the seeding and all of that taking its time, that works. Dr. Mark Donahoe, seriously, I, I, I love the way that you put everything into a functional perspective. I'm a and practitioner. <laughs> for God's sake, I've got to make people well. <laughs> but you look at even the dysfunction, you look at how it, that, that has a function. And I, I respect that because people have got to look for how our body will try and protect us. Yeah. And, and I love the way that you sort of try and incorporate that and, and help your patients to, yeah. to um, you know, regain their, their health. Yeah. Half the time what we call disease is adaptation to the best, the best way the body can manage. And the cost of that is adapting all the time means eventually something breaks and then it really is disease. So our integrative approach is take the load off, the disease does not occur you get a chance to break that cycle which eventually degenerates into true medical disease. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.